Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we've seen Avatar, The Way of Water. Um, the <laughs> Finally it's arrived, 12, 13 years after the original Avatar came out. Its sequel is here. It's been pushed back and pushed back and pushed back and it was going to be a three film series. It became a five film series. They kept on saying the technology's got to improve and develop and all this. James Cameron, the director and guy behind it all, is incredibly devoted to the technological developments that his films require and so on. Mm. Uh, it's named The Way of Water for the giant queue of people needing a piss afterwards because <laughs> it's three hours and 12 minutes long. But we both remarked, even yes. though we were in that queue, we both remarked that it did not feel three hours and 12 minutes long. No, I didn't look at my watch once. It really which moves. Is usually my, uh, uh, the sign that I'm finding a dollar, you know. This uh, this kept me going. I didn't look at my watch once. I was involved with it at all times. Mm. It was much, much better than I thought or expected, actually. Mm. Because we were just talking earlier about our first experience of watching the original Avatar. and Way back when. Way back when. And it was amazing to see it yeah, in a huge screen with the 3D... You know, it was at Millennium Point, which, you know, was then the official... Uh, IMAX cinema, the largest cinema in Birmingham. As in a full IMAX top to bottom, although yeah. it wasn't a full IMAX film, but it was an enormous screen. Yeah. yeah. And it, it was an amazing experience. And often afterwards, when you talk to people, you were talking about different things because they'd seen it on TV. And of course, the onus there was on how bad the dialogue was and so on and so forth, which is, was true. Mm. Right. And actually today, kind of Mike made a joke that had me laughing for about half an hour, which was like, as the credits came on, Mike said, look at that. It took three people to write that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is, the dialogue is so bad. Right. But there is something to be said about the experience. And it's an experience that you just absolutely cannot recapture when it goes on Netflix or wherever, no. you know, video on demand it'll go. So I had, I, I had a really good time watching it. But I also thought it's kind of dumb. Yes. You know? Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. So we saw this today on um, what is uh, now the kind of main IMAX in Birmingham, the Cineworld digital IMAX. Mm. So, you know, the widescreen IMAX. But um, it's, you know, the, the screen we see, I think probably most of our films on, you know, when the yeah. film is showing in that screen, we yeah. tend to try and see it there. It's great. Um, and this, you know, you had to see it there. There, the, It has been made in high frame rate, 48 frames a second, but that's oh. not showing here. And it wasn't showing at the NEC either, where they have one, because that's where we saw um, Gemini Man, in right. high frame, which was like the only reason to see Gemini Man. So right. we had to make the trip. I did look, and I think there's, I think there's some cinema in Peterborough that's showing it in that format. Right. I'm not going to make that trip. Um, I imagine that the water stuff would have mm. looked astonishing in that. It looked astonishing in it's, 24 it's frames astonishing now. Um, yeah. You know, I would be interested to see how, how the rest of the film kind of works in that. But, I mean, what we saw today, I thought it was just absolutely beautiful, stunning. Someone, uh, I think it, I just saw it in the Wikipedia article in the reception section, I think someone's review said something like, it's an hour of film stuffed into a three-hour bag. Yeah. I can kind of see that. Like, there's, there's an hour of story, really, it's, and it's not that interesting, and it's not at all original, and you see every single beat and moment coming... But everything that's not trying to tell that fairly dull story is what I loved. It's all that playing with the fish in the water, exploring a new world, yeah. and just, 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 just having 
the experience of seeing these visuals. Look at this fish we've made. Look at the lighting. Look what we've done. Look how great the water looks. And you've just spent so long look doing all that stuff. And I loved every minute of that. I, I did too. Glorious. And I disagree with that, that it's a one-hour story stuffed into uh, three hours. Because, you know, you have to think about what is story on film, right? It's not just plot. Mm. The, the story is not reducible to the plot, right? So it has a quite a thin plot. Yeah, but I think the the story is richer than that. And part of the reason why the film doesn't feel boring is because all of those shots of the water and the bonding with the animals and so on are important, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're pleasurable and they're beautiful to look at and they're entertaining, right? So, you know, there's a reason why the film is not boring. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, like they're connected to the characters. So the idea of this film is um, it's set 10 or so years um maybe a bit more, after the end of the first Avatar, in which Jake Sully, a human, um, was given a, a Navi body, which is this alien race, on this moon called Pandora, that the army is trying to take over, they're trying to mine it, it's all, it, you know, all this colonialism stuff going on in there, and he goes native, mm. um, and he decides to fight for the Navi and help to protect their mm. world, and they defeat the enemy, and now a decade and a half, something like that, after that, he's got a family, he's the leader of this clan, he's Turuk Makto, I think was the thing, is that he tamed the big bird that no one could tame, and that made him the king, you know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, uh, the guys he fought are coming back for him, there's there's vengeance involved, and so um, they leave in order to protect the rest of the people. They leave, and they go to this um, other race of people there, they're fish people. Mm. Every film has fish people now. DC's had Aquaman for ages, and Marvel just introduced the Mexican Nemo. fish people, yeah. and now we've got fish people in Avatar. And they search for refuge there, just, just the family of, what, five or six of them. And, of course, the fight ends up being brought to um, the fish people because they track him down, they're still after him. Um, and all of that exploration of, you know, once we get there, learning about these people, learning about the world in which they inhabit and learning to get on with all the various fish mm. that they've got is just glorious. And, as you say, it's not just that it's wonderful to look at all this stuff, although it is, but it's that it's because the kids, it's all about the kids, really. Their exploration of the world in which they're in mm. is is what we're connected to. Like, we share their joy and their wonder and their all that stuff. Yes. You know, it's not just that it's nice to look at, it's that the characters feel it too, and that's what we're connected to, mm. you know? Um, I think in, in another, I think it was Peter Bradshaw who said that in spite of all the technology, there isn't a single kind of exciting image in the film. And actually, I don't agree with that at all. Mm -hmm. I thought that, you know, there were entire sequences that I thought were marvelous uh, to look at. Uh, I thought, I, I particularly, the young daughter, I th who I think is played by Sigourney Weaver, yeah, kind of all of her, you know, connecting with the, with the sea life and the turning on of the lights and creating a trail through all of that and, you know, discovering her breathing wings. And, mm. you know, I thought kind of there were like, uh, you know, there were beautiful images that were also actually kind of spectacular story points. Yeah. Yeah. And things, uh, yeah, she, she plays that character because uh, the character is also um, the, the daughter of the character Sigourney we've played mm. in the first film. Um, there are shots that are backlit by by um, kind of sunsets and things, mm. which are just absolutely magical. And it's funny. I was thinking. I was thinking. It's a while since I watched the first Avatar, and I didn't revisit it in any way before seeing mm. this. And I kind of wish I had because I was thinking. Some of this doesn't look all that different 
from the first Avatar, but that speaks more, I think, to how extraordinary Avatar was mm. visually than to a kind of lack of progress. Because there was certainly progress, certainly in terms of um, kind of materials, like obviously the water, a lot of time has been spent on making the water look as good and realistic mm. as it is and having light refract through it the way it does. Lighting has been a huge change in, in kind of graphics and cinema over the last decade or so. We've seen it in things like well, the Marvel films and uh, Toy Story 3 and 4 had incredible lighting compared to, you know, what had come before. Um, so those things are huge improvements. And and there wasn't a single thing visually that I kind of didn't believe. Mm. You know, obviously these guys, you know, the Navi look like cats and the fish people are fishy. Mm. Uh, and you never believe that they're real. But but you don't, you know, once you buy that they're characters in this world... You know, you don't, you don't see flaws in them. You know, mm. everything, everything is something I believe, and I think what I, what I really, um, sort of thought was was the same visually, in terms of its quality as, as the original Avatar was was the animation. You know, a lot of work had been put into facial animation, facial motion capture, mm. and getting all of these details of how someone looked. I remember in the first film, it was about Sigourney Weaver's smile. Mm. She's got this really identifiable smile, and you saw it mm. in her CGI Navi version. You go, wow, that's. That's amazing that they've you know, managed to communicate that. And here it's Stephen Lang, mm. who he was the villain in the first one. He returns as a villain in this, now as an avatar himself. Mm. And again, it's 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 the look of his mouth again, actually. Mm. It's the, it's his smile and the way his teeth look. Mm. Um, it's it's remarkable. Mm. It's really remarkable, and and and, and it really sells you know the, the, the believability, the reality yeah. of what you're seeing. I mean, I thought uh, you know it's an interesting thing how this is different than animation and it makes a difference because i think you know the mobile faces yeah kind of they do convey i don't know a different degree of humanity yeah it's kind of uh more believable um than than yeah the actors can bring something to it Mm. uh and they do you know so i thought i mean i've mixed feelings because i was looking at these bodies and to me there's something slightly disturbing about the shape, right? Like the design of the very tall, slender. Yeah, I mean they're very attractive, but also they all look like adolescent boys. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it's that look that that kind of young boys have, like, Maybe, so, like they've grown up too quickly. They're all lanky. That's right. So, so you know, they're they're too skinny, right? Like, uh, and you, they've just shot up. And in another three or four years, they'll get, they'll gain that weight back and look normal. But you know, <laughs> yeah. So, so I thought they're supposed to be kind of lithe and cat-like, aren't they? Because they live in the trees. I know, I know. Yeah, but uh, they're highly detailed, and I, I wouldn't. I'm not sure if it's um, sexualized particularly, but just that that is the ideal. Yeah, there's something kind of. Um, to think about there. Uh, how do you mean ideal? You think it's the film's ideal of what a person should yes. should look like? Yes. I mean, to create a world where all these, you know, warriors, you know, like they have that mm. torso and those long limbs and those arms, yeah? Um, I thought, you know, it was worth kind of mm. thinking about, really. Um, you think differently about the fish people? Or pretty much the same. I mean, they're not that different. No, they're not that different. Um, So, I mean, the thing about the fish people that I noticed is they all have kind of like indigenous tribal tattoos of some kind, right? Yes. So, you know, there is like this mix of mysticism in the film, 
tribal stuff, water worship, Buddhism. There's a Maori thing going on, especially later on when they're all sticking their tongues out, which like the hacker and like yeah. the Maori intimidation sort of thing. But it, I mean, it felt very um, well. Dumb is the word you use, and that's the word I would use. Like it's not. It's 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 kind of um, it's a dumb person's idea of giving a group of people. Um, a kind of a, a characteristic of tribalism mm. or something like that. Like it's not, it's really not that smart. You've just copied something that you've seen a certain tribe of people, a certain group of people have in real life. I'm wondering if this deserves a little bit further exploration because you yeah. know the argument that I always make at, about musicals is if you're looking for the depth in musicals in characterization and story, you're a fool, right? Because whatever musicals have to tell us about life and what it is to be human, so on. Actually, comes from the dancing, yeah, and you know the singing and the camera movement and the set design, and the color, and you know, and I think maybe this is that kind of film, yeah. So, so, so certainly at a surface level, from what I can see now, it really lacks intellectual depth. Something, you know, to be considered maybe is if there isn't something else in that technology, the spectacle, the imagery, right? Kind of, yeah, mm. all of those things, yeah. Um, but uh, I'm old and I can't keep three hours in my head. <laughs> I think it may be to do with, like, maybe the real value is in in that sense of wonder. If it can mm. communicate it to you, then that's that's what's really valuable well, about it. And I think it does. And some mm-hmm. of the things that seem, like, a little corny, I really liked. You know, so, like, the conversation with the fish. Yeah, we're yeah. both outcasts. I mean, I, you know, I found it kind of... On some level, basic, but also touching. It worked on me emotionally. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, th- I think it, I did laugh because he's chatting to the way to this fish and he's chatting away and we've had no indication yet that he can understand the fish. You know, so he's talking to it like the way you might talk to your cat or something. Mm. But you're never going to understand the answer that your cat gives you. And, and, and so when the fish, the, it comes up with subtitles, he asks the fish why he's been outcast because mm. someone has told him that this fish is an outcast from his, from his group. And so when he asks, the fish says something like it's complicated, which is hilarious in itself, that a fish is giving such a you know an interesting answer. But then the idea that like it's subtitled, so there's something to be understood here, and the character can maybe understand it. And of course you then get the idea that okay, all of these noises that the fish is making, these kind of, you know, um, submariner noises, these these grunts and howls and stuff, are a language. Um so you go, Okay, I guess, yeah, fine, I get that, they're learning it, whatever. And then a little bit later, you get the um, research scientist who's having his research paid for by the fact that they, they're they essentially whalers. Um, and he describes how these are intelligent creatures, more intelligent mm. even than, than humans. And again, you kind of, this is something that you, you hear occasionally about, you know, you don't, you, like pigs, elephants, dolphins, you hear how intelligent they are. Not that they're more intelligent than humans, but mm. these are animals with great intelligence compared to other animals. And of course, yeah, whenever I hear that, I kind of think, yeah, yeah, but you know, they've never written a play. <laughs> <laughs> but then in but this, they compose music. Yeah, in this, we've got, like, know, they're great songwriters in this. And, <laughs> I, and I just, like, that was too much for me. I still don't really buy that. Someone's, you know, one of the, one of the whales dies and the, um, the the woman who the queen of this of this of this tribe this fish people says she's crying over it and says that it was this fish was a great songwriter I'm like I, I'm, you're not selling that to me you haven't done enough like I kind of thought it but <laughs> my first thought also was well if you're so smart why why haven't you you know created 
spaceships like the others, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but but what you're saying is, you know, it's a bit of a distraction because what you're saying about you know, despite corniness, there's something really to enjoy and all of that stuff. Yes. It's absolutely true. I like it too. I like the fact that this kid is just developing the relationship with this fish. I kind of know roughly where it's going to be going, mm. you know, because then you get this fish's story, and then you go, okay, fish is going to be redeemed somehow, and and. And he, he gets on with the kid because the kid is also feeling outcast as well, like all kids do, I guess. Mm. But there's that. Um, so even though like every single movement along these these kind of character arcs, I think is incredibly predictable, and every single movement of the story, I think is incredibly predictable. That's kind of not that that's not standing in my way of enjoying things. And in, I think one of the things about the first Avatar, you know, people really picked up on how unoriginal things were. And they they said it was Fern Gully in space. They compared mm. it to Dancing with Wolves and so on and so forth. Again, not really an original bone in its body, plot-wise. Um, but I kind of think, like, that's that's one of the reasons it became the highest-grossing film of all time, because it didn't challenge anything. It didn't challenge you to understand its story. It made it incredibly easy to enjoy what was beautiful and splendid about it which was its visuals and its aesthetic and its atmosphere and all of that yes though for me <laughs> what was really off-putting was really the dialogue you know every time they said yo bro right like it just kind of made me think of gay porn films you know it's like <laughs> oh you're so big bro <laughs> bro <laughs> like all this broing like <laughs> yeah. i thought my god you know like the dialogue is just atrocious it, it is very bad uh, yeah so and that and it was atrocious on the level that it got me out of the film. I, that it, you know, it really did make me think about. You didn't those notice things. how bad it was. Like, I mean, the thing about plot points being you know predictable and and you see the cogs and everything is they were they weren't bad enough to take you out of it. You saw what it was doing, but you but it never jumped you out of mm. it. But you're right about the dialogue that you notice that all the time in a very distracting way. Yeah, it's so cliche-ish. Like I see you, son, yeah, <laughs> and all this, you know, these these contemporary. Uh, expressions, yeah, this this vernacular that is like kind of you hear everywhere. So yeah, the you know is every cliche in the book. I see you, yeah, bro. You know uh, that's what fathers are for. That's the one that really know. got to me about the thing about because I see you was from the original film, and it was this thing about that's actually what the Navi say when they mm. when they bond sort of thing. Okay, so right. they kind of. I, I give it that one. Oh, so maybe that, that's where the expression comes from, from the original I mean, Avatar. I think maybe people actually did copy that a bit from the first yeah. Avatar. Um, the thing about the Jake Sully character constantly talking about what a father does, a father protects, and that's what gives his meaning. I thought, not only is that really boring, but is that is that not kind of a little bit retrograde? It's not that unhealthy, really, like to, to, to want to protect your family as a father and to think that's a great thing. But there is something about... Um, it kind of implies seeing other people as enemies to your family all the time somehow. There's yeah. something that I don't quite relish about that idea. Well, the film is mixed up about that, right? Because, you know, there's that whole thing with the white boy. What's it, what's it called? A spider. A spider, right? Where White as in human. He's a human yeah. that they have sort of adopted. So, you know, where he's initially in the family, then he's outside the family. Then at the end of the film, the family's reconstructed with him replacing the lost son. Right, so you know, so this idea of a family is not purely biological. Well, through most of the film, you get the feeling that it's biological. Well, at first, it isn't biological. Then it becomes biological. Then at the end, this other kid is reintegrated. And to me, that just seems muddled. Yeah, mm. like you know. Um, uh, well, this, the, the film has a has some conceptualization of 
like a magic bond between fathers and sons in particular. Mm. Yes. Because the thing about this Spider character is he is the son of the Stephen Lang character who died at the end of the first one, which is the villain. And Stephen Lang's character returns as this cloned Navi avatar version in this. And they say very you know, up front, like, he's not my son, we're not biologically related, I just have the memories of his father. Mm. And even his father wasn't really his father because he hated him so much, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, but nonetheless... You have the son saving him at mm. the end, saving this clone version, and and it is muddled because because he's been abducted by the clone Stephen Lang, and there is this thing about is he connecting to his dad? You know, because because initially he's like absolutely not, no way, I hate you, and I won't talk mm. to you, and I won't give you anything, I won't tell you where anyone is, all that sort of stuff. But you do then get a couple of scenes, or maybe it's just one scene where. Um, it's where the Stephen Lang character is uh, bonding with the, the, the dinosaur bird thing, mm. which again is like it's kind of recapitulating that scene where Jake Sully does it in the first film. And when he manages to tame this bird and then start flying around on it, having fun, the kid smiles and it's like, oh, right, is he, is he gaining some sympathy? Mm. But it doesn't follow that through to any convincing degree that he might have been like returned by his dad. Mm. And then eventually, when it gets to the end of the climactic fight and Stephen Lang has been drowned, suffocated by um, Jake Sully. Spider sees him, wants to swim away, but can't bring himself to, rescues him. Mm. But but it hasn't been sold enough because then he, he does that, but then even though he rescues him, he still leaves, returns to the Jake Sully family. It is, it, I, just, I mean, what it's essentially doing is setting up <laughs> that he will come back again for the third mm. film and he's never going to stop being um, being the villain. But it, it's just, it's not thought through enough. It's not worked through enough. It's not... It doesn't make enough sense of the characters' relationships with one another and the thoughts they have towards each other and their motivations. Mm. It is, as you say, very muddled. Mm. And I don't really feel... I don't understand... I don't. Yeah, that's what it is. I don't feel that I understand well enough. I don't think it's convincing enough yeah. why he did this, that, or the other. Well, I, I, I get why he does narratively, you know, because the thing about being this clone, there's a, a, a little um, scene at the beginning where they say that basically all the memories and feelings have been captured mm. in this pen drive. So, I, so, you know, what is a person? Well, yeah, you know. yeah. And so, of course, that's why he gives up in the in the showdown, the Mexican standoff. Yeah, he lets he lets the that son go, and that is why the son then goes to yeah, rescue this person so. who's ostensibly the father. So, you know, but it does seem like there's something in James Cameron's writing that's like this is a magical bond, and it doesn't sure. quite need to be explained. You know, yeah, like it's it's just because they're father and son somehow, and yeah. that overrides things. Yeah, I mean, um, that is kind of um, dodgy. I mean. <laughs> But let's focus on the great things, because I think one of the things I most enjoyed about this film, aside from the way that it looks and the whole spectacle of the thing, which I really can't underline enough, I found amazing. I also love the action, yeah, which is another thing that uh, Cameron, I think, is terrific at. And all of the scenes here with, you know, the 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 ch- the, the killing of the fish, of you know, that whale type mm-hmm. thing, uh, the shootouts then, yeah, at the end, which occupy maybe like, you know, the last quarter yeah, of the film. They're big. Yeah. 
I, th- I found all of it really quite exciting, you know. Yeah. And really well done. It's a, it's a, I mean, I remember in the, again, in the original Avatar, there was this thing about how the last hour of the film is going to be action, he promised. You know, like, oh, God. But actually, it turned out to kind of be all right because he knows how to move his way through. And actually, he knows how to develop it and keep it interesting. And I think one of the things you can tell in, in this and the original Avatar as well, as I recall, is um, that he's... He's not just filming things in 3D. He's conceiving of action in 3D. Yes. He's conceiving of imagery in 3D. Yes. The relationship between foreground and background, or just the. I love that. I love that in this film. Just even in scenes that were not action, like in dialogue scenes, yeah, kind of. It was. It was actually quite beautiful to see how this filming in depth, you know, which you're used to seeing in, you know, normal cinema. Yeah, mm. you can. Yeah. It, and it's often kind of maybe meaningful or, you know, it tells the story in different ways when you're kind of filming in depth. But here the filming in depth actually was like using the 3D to create that depth, which is also a narrative depth. It, I thought that was wonderful. Yeah, I, I, when I did, when Avatar came out in 2009, I was doing my dissertation at uni, my third year. My dissertation was on 3D cinema mm. because it was, and Avatar was a film that was really driving its revival at that time and getting cinemas to install 3D equipment, 3D projectors and so on, just so they could show this, you know. And that was going to be the film that made it stick. And of course, it hasn't really stuck. This is a one-off. 3D did not, uh, 3D did not really capture people. It never mm. has for very long. Um, but one of the things I did during that dissertation was I spoke to a guy called Phil McNally. He calls mm. himself Phil Captain 3D McNally. <laughs> uh, and he's a 3D supervisor on various films in the States. He did uh, like Monsters vs. Aliens and things. And he said something really interesting to me, which seemed so obvious as soon as he said it, which was that every filmmaker is making a film in 3D. Mm. Like every image, that, apart from maybe South Park, mm. you know, which is supposed to look like cardboard cutouts, mm. every image you're making is conceived in 3D. You're mm. trying to give an illusion of 3D depth. Sure. In a stereoscopic movie, you're just actually doing that. Mm. You're giving that illusion more kind of substance. Mm. You know, and, and of course it's so true. So... I'm, I'm sure this film would look wonderful in, in two dimensions. It would, it, would still ha- it would still communicate those ideas. It's just made more, quote-unquote, real mm. in this. Of course, you know, one of the things about 3D that people hate is that when things come out of the screen, you know, you try and put your hand through them and they disappear and it kind of makes itself not real immediately. But films films haven't done that in, in 10 or 15 years. And one of the things about um, Avatar was like the, the, the in 2009 was the opening shot of that was um, kind of seen through fog, seeing into this planet and seeing things go. And it was about going into this world, like mm. it's seeing the screen as a window mm. instead of, you know, something like a porthole for things to come firing out at you, which was mm. the gimmick thing that everyone... People still really associate that with 3D. Sure. And it's just not very true anymore. There is the occasional shot that's along those lines. There are shots of like spears or bullets coming towards the camera or you know, in the camera's direction vaguely, but, the, but nothing jumps out to you in that, in that way that really ruins the kind of... Um, uh, your 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 belief, I guess, in the world mm. that kind of reminds you that it's you know, or th- makes you think of it as a gimmick anymore. Um, anyway, I don't know. I'm still talking. I'm, I was I'm thinking, you know, that like poor Hitchcock because one yeah. of the best uses that I saw of that type of 3D was in Dial M for Murder. Yeah, you know, where the whole kind of narrative resolution of the mystery. Is through the 3D. Yeah. yeah. I think it was the scissors or something. And she, then it, she reaches her hand towards yeah. the camera. <laughs> That's right. But, it, but her hand, again, I recall because we saw it, didn't we? It doesn't come out of the screen. It comes towards the screen. It's, it's, the 3D is expressing, you know, that her, her, her wish to stay alive, her desire and all that. But it's the, the scissors are still sat 
on the other side of the screen from us. It's still not poking. But my point is, you know, that here is like the genius of Hitchcock working in 3D, using the 3D for, you know, this particular storytelling. Mm. And then, of course, I think by the by the time the film was made and came out, 3D was already finished and it was released flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, yeah. I think. I think it may have been seen a bit in 3D, but it really hasn't for the most part. And 3D at the time was, um, I mean, it was, it was around for, for three or four years. Yeah, not very like long. 52 to 55-ish. Yeah, yeah. I think it was, yeah. Um, so anyway... Um, I really love the action here. You know, it was exciting to watch. It was beautiful. You can see where all the arrows were coming. You could, uh, you understand what was at stake in each scene, what they were going after, mm. the, the various hurdles to accomplishing what they needed and surviving. You know, you knew where the children were tied up and they had to get to them. And so actually kind of the journey of getting to them, of yeah, trying to rescue them was always clear, you know. So, and I think action takes on a, a different, uh, shape, form, and has a different effect when you do that. Like, uh, you know, I always go about this, the geography of, yeah, mm. you know, but, but you need that. And most films forget that, you know, it's not enough just to have like limbs going all over the way or bullets, you know, yeah. or kind of these edits that kind of just do montages of things uh, crashing, yeah, or exploding. I thought this was like really, really well done, really exciting to see. Yeah. Um, and I think ultimately, um, I would say the way, the way you have to see it is in the cinema oh, yes. and and probably in 3D as well. Although yes. I can see it looking very good in 2D. You know, but but you miss something. You do miss something. You would. Yeah. I think that's true. I mean, um, you know, kind of... I think, I think my pet peeve at the moment is, you know, people speaking in bad faith about the cinema, which, you know, so often you'll have critics who get kind of screeners and actually they're reviewing films from their laptop on some screener that they've got somewhere... And really, if cinema is an experience at all, yeah, then actually you have to give yourself over to the experience. And it's a different experience in the cinema. Mm. You know, so films that are conceived for the cinema, and you can't find a better example than this one, yeah, should be seen there. Because actually, if you just see it on a TV, you're seeing something else. Yeah. But it is, I, I got into a minor argument with someone on Reddit recently. Um, I forget what the thread was about, but Christopher Nolan came up. And um, Christopher Nolan is someone who's really driven um, celluloid, like keeping celluloid alive. Mm. And my brother was telling me that for Oppenheimer, he got uh, uh, Kodak or whoever it is, IMAX, I guess, to make a um, black and white IMAX film, which they'd never done before. You know, and it's like that's the amount of clout that he has, mm. you know. And he's been absolutely instrumental in, in keeping film, celluloid film alive and keeping people actually making it. And he's, you know, we have his disagreements about how good his films are. We have issues with them here, there and everywhere. But you want to see them at the cinema. He wants them to be seen at the cinema. And someone, this person on Reddit said, they used the word pompous. It blew my mind how pompous it is to say that your film should be seen at the cinema, essentially. How pompous of Christopher Nolan, they were saying. And I thought, I can't, like, I can kind of get, I can understand if people are lazy. And just can't be bothered to see things at the cinema. Like, I don't agree with it, but I can I can understand that. But to see that as pompous that an artist would have an idea of, and it's not it's not like it's not like saying you should go to this particular cinema in the middle of nowhere to see my film. Mm. Go to a cinema, and they're everywhere. Like that's all Christopher Nolan is saying. 
has said or was saying in you know that people were talking about and the idea that someone would see that as pompous mm. is ridiculous it's sort of like saying you know imagine how pompous it is to say that your book should be read on paper rather than an audio book for mm. instance like so i can imagine an author saying that Sure. You know, I, I think my books are better read with your eyes than with your ears. Yes. And I can kind of, I can understand what they would be saying. And I don't know if people would call that pompous. I think that was called like uh, an old fashioned nostalgic determinist or something at one point as a result of this. But, you know, I mean, we live in a world where there's lots of images. They circulate everywhere and in different ways. You know, I don't have, I watch most of my stuff through a television set like most people. You know, well, actually, probably most people not watch it through a laptop. You know, but I do think um, cinema, I'm, I'm very sad, for example, that I cannot see Guillermo del Toro's uh, Pinocchio or Bardo or things that, you know, things by these filmmakers who are, are so exciting and who normally work with a big screen and who defend the big screen. And all of a sudden, your only way of seeing these things are on a television set. And my own experience is a negative one. Yeah, I remember seeing uh, Jean Vigo's L'Atlante, and I've been, you know, waiting to see it for like 20 years. I finally got a hold of a VHS copy, and I saw it, and I thought, what was all the excitement about, really? Mm. You know, and then I saw it on a big screen, and you completely get what all the excitement is about. But mm. then I felt robbed of my first experience of watching the film, True. you know, because, yeah, you're never going to recapture that experience, and it is a different one. So, I mean, you know, I think if audiences are not willing to see a film like Avatar in a cinema, then cinema really tr- truly is dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Having said that, um, Avatar has made some $800 million so far. Yeah. It's been out for about a week, so it's going to be huge. And I was, I, was, I was interested in that because, you know, one of the things I was thinking before it came out was the world in which Avatar was released in 2009 is not the same world cinematically sure. as today. Right? It's 13 years since. and At the time, it was the biggest film of all time. It, it remains the highest grossing. Mm. Avengers Endgame overtook it for a bit, and then uh, they re-released Avatar in China to, mm. to bump up its numbers. <laughs> so uh, I think adjusted for inflation, it's still gone with the wind. But you know, pure numbers, it's Avatar at about $3 billion. But since 2009... Since since that came out and was going to be the big new franchise that was going to change things forever, and it was going to be 2014, 2015, it kept getting pushed back and pushed back. Since that, Marvel has changed cinema completely. Blockbuster cinema completely, like the way we think of blockbuster films, mm. but yeah, films like this, sure. it's become so much more about the world building, you know, and the universe. And this is not a film that's set in a universe. This is still. We, but essentially one character and his story. It's one character and his family and everyone else around him, but it's Jake Sully's story as the first one was. It's mm. a continuation of that. Mm. This is not about a universe in which someone else is going to show up from over here, someone else is going to show up from here, and then we'll have a crossover eventually. Yeah, That's yeah. not what this this series is looking like it's going to be. No. So it was interesting to me basically to think of how this series, which was conceived in the pre-Marvel times, would would go over in now that Marvel has, you know, been through its first big, you know, mm. phase and endgame and all of that. Um, it obviously seems to be going down extremely well. It's making a huge amount of money and will continue to, I'm sure. Um, and from my perspective, it kind of, it doesn't feel out of date, you know, no. like, like story wise, you know, aesthetically, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't feel out of date. And certainly aesthetically, it feels absolutely a cut above other yeah. things. I mean, you can tell the amount of work that's gone in. You can, and, and this isn't meant to uh, kind of piss on, digital artists who do all that. They're under enormous amount of pressure as it financially and in terms of time mm. and all that kind of stuff. Like you hear the stories about 
um, what uh, VFX artists, what they go through for, for Marvel in particular, but other um, companies as well, the pressure that they're under and, and the way they're treated and so on. It's awful. Um, but you can kind of tell, I think, the level of investment in those people that has happened for this film. You see it in the credits. Because yeah. actually, I think after the film is over, you get the credits of the director, the writers, and then I think about five or six BFX people get their own credit, yeah. you know, which is very unusual. Uh, and this before the actors and so on, right? Yeah. So, um, so I thought that was that was telling, and they deserve the credit. It looks amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. We're eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Eavesdrop Movies, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye bye. And Merry Christmas. Oh, yeah, Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>